he didn't stop to pay attention to the congregation. He was unapproachable from the moment that he arrived. No one seemed important enough for his time. He sought after money and numbers. As a teaching pastor, he taught God's word eloquently. But he was blind to the areas that he wasn't living it out in his own life. You can imagine the division resulting in hypocrisy. Nothing has hurt or angered me more than watching someone whose calling is to love him and to love his. Only love himself. I experienced a church that was divided. There were two distinct sides, and those who were on the opposing sides would not even speak to or sit next to each other. When they did speak in meetings, it was only out of necessity. It was very hateful, and there were horrible fights, even physical fights. By the way, physical fights in the church, people punching each other. Sermons were preached that would intentionally push people's buttons. They would also have meetings where they would allow anyone, even non-members and visitors, to get up and to say whatever they wanted to the congregation, elders, and pastors regarding the division. Church staff had the locks to their offices changed, and they were never provided, again, a key to be able to get in and get their things. Members were sent letters discontinuing their membership without any consultation or attempt to reconcile the differences. Gossip was rampant and the Holy Spirit was pushed out by pride and divisiveness. I grieve the loss of the church that I once knew that was actively reaching out to people and sharing Christ's love. It was now being deceived by Satan and distracted from Christ's purposes and calling for the church. I have never experienced such sadness as when Christ's body starts to hurt itself. Those two stories that I just shared were two responses from over 15 that I received from our congregation when I sent out an email and I asked the simple question, can you tell me about a time in your life where you've been hurt and you've developed baggage in the church? Can I just open by asking this question? How many of you in here in the room right now would say, that you have a similar experience to one of these stories. Just raise your hand. When you think about that, how many people in the room have church baggage in their lives? Let me ask you another question. And this is a question that's more difficult because it gets a lot more personal. But how many of you would be honest to say that you've been a part of causing church baggage or maybe divisiveness or discord in the church by your own doing. Don't have to op- you don't have to raise your hands because I would raise both of mine because I'm guilty of that as well. The church as we know it has had a lot of problems, hasn't it? Have you ever caught yourself asking this question? Is this really what God intended for the church? To be. If you're like me, you've asked that question a lot. As you hear stories like this, and as you've seen some of your own stories, and as you've developed bitterness to the church, did God really intend for the church to be full of dissension 
divisiveness, discord, distrust, whatever other clever this word, you know, you can come up with. Like, is that what God intended for the church to be about? I think that the resounding answer to that question is no. Amen? I don't believe that the Spirit-filled church, the biblical church, looks like that. I'm not saying that I believe that there is a perfect church, but what I am saying is that the Bible opens up for us a biblical model of what church should look like. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, the Spirit-filled church that we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. So I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. As we open up this uh, text, what we're going to look at is that in order to be the Spirit-filled church in Acts 2, there was one condition, there were at least four commitments, and there is one consequence. That's going to be the progression as we go through the text, leading in an opportunity for each of us to respond in our own way. So let me pray for us as you turn there and we'll begin. Father, God, this is a a text that I'm very passionate about, but God, I pray that you would help my passion to not precede the Word of God. God, I pray that you would help for each of us to be led by the Spirit as I preach as we learn and as we grow. Father, I pray tonight that you would be glorified in these words, God, and I pray that you would give us the biblical picture of what the church is called to be and what it's called to not be. And Father, I pray that if there are those here tonight who don't know you as Lord and Savior of of their life, that your mercy that your calling would break through their hard heart and you would remove the scales from their eyes and they would receive you as Lord and as King. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. We have switched to the ESV. So we're going to have a lot of this text up on the screen. You can read it with me here. You can read uh, from your Bibles. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As I shared a moment ago, this is a text that I'm very passionate about. This is actually the passage of Scripture that leads and that guides our Lot family model here at Matthias Lot. So I have had the joyful opportunity to be able to teach and to preach this passage of Scripture almost probably a hundred times As I was preparing to preach this week, there was something that I saw in this text that I had never seen before. I was reading a commentary by a guy named John MacArthur who is a pastor in California. And I was reading this, a word in verse 42 popped out to me that I had never really sat and just 
thought about the implications of what this word meant. And this is the condition that we're going to find that leads to having a spirit-filled church. That word at the beginning of verse 42 is proskertereo, which means to adhere to or to be devoted. There's something about this spirit-filled church. There's a condition that has been met in order for it to be spirit-filled. Now, they're devoted to the teaching. They're devoted to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. But if they were only devoted to those things without being devoted something prior than that, they would merely be religious. They would be Pharisees. What we know that they are devoted to happened earlier at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. Remember, the 120 were gathered together. They were waiting on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes. Tongues of fire come. And the apostles there, they are gathered. And they all begin to speak in different native tongues. And there are thousands that gather around and they're, they're hearing and they're listening to the gospel in their own language. The words of these men. But they accuse them of being drunk. And so Peter stands up and he shares for them the word of God. He opens up the scriptures and they respond by saying that they have been cut to the heart What should we do? And Peter says, repent. Turn away from your wicked ways and know God. Have a relationship with Him. Be baptized. Profess your faith to the world and receive the Holy Spirit. And they do that. So this church of 120 very quickly goes to 3,120 And as we begin to look at what they're doing, we find out that they've become devoted to the teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread in prayer. But that devotion is being driven by the fact that they know Jesus. They love Him. They have a relationship with Him. The condition of the early church, the Spirit-filled church, is that they are saved. Now, Many of us that were talking about the baggage that we have and the struggles that we have with the church, I would argue this, that most of our negative experiences that have developed in the church have come from a simple fact, and I'm not saying all of them, I'm just saying some of them have come from the fact that many of the churches that we have been a part of have been predominantly made up, maybe even led by non-believing people not spirit-led. Do you see that? It seems like the standard of how we welcome people into the church has been lowered greatly. I remember growing up in a traditional Southern Baptist church, and again, no church is perfect, and so I'm not here tonight to say that Matthias Lot is, but in the church that I grew up in, when somebody wanted to become a member, all they had to do is walk an aisle, fill out a card, put it in the plate. There was no questioning that had to take place. You said that you were a Christian, you were a Christian. You came into the church, very quickly there was a chance that you would be leading a ministry. Possibly you would become a deacon. And then all of a sudden you see this unity of non-believers being united in believers and non-believers leading the church. When the church is led by non-believers, there will be dysfunction. Period. The church is made up of believers. 
Christians, born again, saved by the gospel, redeemed. That's the church. There's a passage of scripture I want to share with you. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 and 15 says this. Paul here is writing to the church of Corinth and he challenges them by saying, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? We, we say this passage so many times as we're talking to people that are going to get married. Or you've had a friend that, you know, it's a boyfriend and a girlfriend and they're dating a non-believer. And you're like, well, remember what 1 Corinthians says. I'm sorry. Yeah, 1 Corinthians says. <laughs> Is that 1 Corinthians? No, 2 Corinthians. I wrote that wrong. It's 2 Corinthians. Remember what this passage says. That was good, huh? And we say, wait a second, you can't, you can't do that. The Bible, the Bible says so. And that's true, the Bible does say so, that you're not supposed to be unequally yoked. But as Paul's writing this, he's not just writing to people that are going to get married. He's writing it to the church, right? He's saying, don't be unequally yoked. There is a problem when the church begins to allow non-believers to become covenant members, to be members of the church. Now I say that because I'm saying this. You may be hearing me now saying like, this is really confusing because these guys are telling us all the time that they want us to bring our non-believing friends, people that don't know God, that don't believe in God, and they want them to come and to be a part of our church. If you know anything about Matthias Lot, you know that's true. In our small group model, it's not closed. It's open. There's always an open seat for people to come and to be a part of our small groups because we believe that there is great beauty and great value to non-believers coming and witnessing the worship of the saints, to hear the praises being sung, to hear the word being preached, to see believers pray because we believe that God uses that. But what we also believe in this church is that the church is not to welcome in members who are non-believers. That's a serious issue. In our uh, church covenant, the very first thing that is said as you're signing the church covenant, I have a little excerpt of that that I want to put up here on the screen in a moment. There it is. I am a Christian who has been saved from my sins by the grace of Jesus Christ. And then the question that we ask, and you have to sign, and many of you who are covenant members, you've seen this. If not, this is what you would sign if you ever became a member of our church. Have you been baptized to give testimony or of identification with the body of Christ? We will not allow people to become covenant members of our church because we believe that the Bible is very clear. Christians make up the church, but we love non-believers to come. So... If you're here today and you don't believe in God, welcome. We are glad you're here. Thank you for coming. And we hope that tonight that God will tug at your heart and he will show you that he's real. So that's the condition. Pretty simple, right? To be a spirit-filled church, you have to have spirit-filled people. Okay? Four commitments now that we see that arise in this spirit-filled church. First, it's right there in verse 42. They are committed, they are devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, 
a lot of this passage, the, verse 42 is like a summary passage, and then verses 43 to 47 are an unpacking of what Luke summarizes there in verse 42. So in verse 43, we know that this Spirit-filled New Testament church is engaging in teaching by what we see happen in verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. You see, that word awe can also be the word fear. So there is an awe, there is a fear that these people, these new believers, are gaining in knowing God and having a relationship with Him. Awe and fear come from an understanding of who God is. And an understanding of who God is is revealed by God through the teaching of God's Word. So it is impossible for us to have an awe and a fear of God unless we know God's Word. Like we see Peter and Paul saying throughout the New Testament that new believers need to be fed with spiritual milk so that they can grow. The thing is that you can't really go beyond the teaching into the fellowship, into the breaking of bread and prayer until you understand that the teaching is foundational to the church. Teaching is the center It's the foundation of our understanding of how we understand to have biblical fellowship. It's how we understand what authentic prayer is supposed to look like. Without teaching, everything else falls apart. I do believe that there's a sequential order to the teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayer. There's a quote that I want to share with you from a guy... um, J. Vernon McGee, who was a prolific pastor, he said this about the teaching of God's Word in the church. He says, The mark of a church is not the height of its steeple nor the sound of the bell. It is not whether the pulpit is stationed in the middle of the chancel or the chancel is divided. The important issue is whether or not they hold to the apostles' doctrine. At Matthias Lot, the reason that we go through the Bible verse by verse in an expository way is because we believe that there is great value in the preaching of God's Word. Where the Word is not preached in the church, the church is weak. We see in the culture all around us, there's a lot of churches that are striving to have fellowship. They talk about wanting to be in in community and having relationships with each other. But I want you to understand what happens when relationships and fellowship become the focus and that's not grounded in the foundation of the Word of God. People take the place of God. It's the same thing that happens with prayer. When the Word of God is not the foundation for prayer and we don't have an understanding of prayer through the understanding of God's Word, prayer becomes about us instead of it being about the awe and the reverence and the fear of God. I got a publication at my house the other day. It was for a church in the area. And this is what it said. They had their church's name, and I'm not going to say it. But right underneath it, their slogan is, where people come first. I would define that as a church that is misplaced teaching in the sequential order of teaching in fellowship. Because people do not come first. God comes first. And you get that when you understand that teaching is central to the church. We have to have the teaching to be able to understand 
all these different things that make up the church. Matthias Lott, again, and I'm going to say this several times, we are not a perfect church. If you came here and you're hoping that this is going to be your church experience, I promise you that at some point or another, we are going to let you down. We're imperfect people. We're striving. I hope at the point that we let you down, we repent, we come to you, and we apologize. Vice versa, if you do that. But here's the thing. We are a church that I can confidently say is striving not to be known for a cool logo, not to be known for a flashy website. By the way, I think our website has changed in like three and a half years. Not to be known for a building, which now we have. Before being known for any of those things, we want to be known for truth and for love. Love and truth. We want to be known for the expository preaching of God's word because without it, none of that other stuff matters. Let's keep going. The second commitment is that they were committed to the fellowship. That's unpacked in verses 44 to 45. And all, the believed, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, if you're reading the same passage that I'm reading, Luke isn't defining fellowship as the gathering that happens for 15 minutes in the fellowship hall around coffee and donuts before church begins. You know what I'm saying? Not that that's bad. And I mean, that's a part of fellowship. But what Luke isn't saying is that fellowship is that hour and a half that all of us go and we get half-price appetizers at Applebee's. Sorry, I'm stuttering. That's not what, that's a part of fellowship, right? And you guys know I definitely love the half-price appetizers. Those nachos are ridiculous, right? And that's a part of fellowship, but that's not all of fellowship. As Luke describes what fellowship is, he says that they have all their goods, all things in common, and they're selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any has need. The word for fellowship Many of you know this. What is it? Somebody just shout it out. Koinonia, right? And the word koinonia comes from another word, koinos, which means common. So there's this image that the early church is taking their things and they're sharing them for those who have need. Now, many people have argued this passage to say that, well, isn't this some type of a form of communism? So I just want to quickly define for you what communism is and that the fact that this is not communism. Communism is a theory or a system of social organization based on the holding of all property in common, actual ownership being ascribed to the community as a whole or to the state. Let me sum up what that means. Communism is forced sharing. It's when a group of people have to take everything that they have, not because they want to, but because they have to, be it by the government or some type of a social order, and they share what they have together. There's basically no private property. Now, we know that that's not what's happening here in the New Testament. We know that they are sharing with each other for those that have need, not because they're being forced to, but because they are desiring to do it out of the overflow of, of their heart. And many people in America, we read this passage and we say, uh-uh, I'm not going to go and take the things that I have and sell them so others have need. 
I believe that this is a biblical picture of when there is someone in our midst who is hurting and there's someone who in our midst needs help and we have an abundance of things that God still calls us today to sacrifice what we have so that others may have. Again, I've been blessed to be able to see this transpiring over the course of the last few years. In our lot family, a few years ago, we had someone who found out that they were going to have to have a foot surgery. And so in the midst of one of our sharing times, they told, their, they told our group that they were going to have to go to the hospital and they were going to have the surgery and they didn't have the finances to be able to afford it. And so at the end of our small group, I went out and I caught them on the front porch of our house and I said, hey, hey, wait a second. And in my mind, I was thinking, you know what? I help lead a budget in our church. We've got several thousand dollars in that budget, so maybe I'll just tell them, hey, I know that need that you have to get that foot surgery. We can just take care of it with our church. And as I got to the front porch of our house and I stopped them and I said, hey, we want to help you with that need that you have. We want to help you to get that foot surgery taken care of. They looked back at me and they said, the need's already been met. There were several hundred dollars that needed to go towards having this foot surgery. And before I was even able to catch them as they walked out of the door of our house, there was people without my direction in our group that said, I want to help. I want to take care of that. That is the picture of true, authentic fellowship. It is sharing of the things that we have so that others who have need can have what they need. It is not just a social idea. It is a sacrificial life of giving to those who are hurting. And that's part of fellowship. There's many other parts to that too, but let's keep going. The third thing that they are committed to is the breaking of bread. That's unpacked in verse 46. We see this, that day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and with generous hearts. As this New Testament church, this spirit-filled church, was gathering together, there was something that they would do. Whether they were gathering in the temple or they were gathering in homes, they were breaking bread together. And as they were breaking bread, I want you to understand this, especially if you're here tonight and you don't understand the concept of communion and what communion is. Communion is to be a proclamation and an act of participation. When we take communion, this is what we are saying. We are proclaiming that Christ has come and He has lived the life that we should have lived. And He died the death that, that we should have died. And so when we gather here and you see Mark or I or whoever is leading communion break the bread, what we are saying is that we are proclaiming Christ and that Christ died for us, for the glory of God. And His body was broken open. The proclamation of the bread being broken is signifying that Christ's body was broken and that He died on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. He atoned for sin so that we could have a relationship with God. And then, whenever the juice is poured, it is a picture of Christ's blood that has been shed. It's a proclamation that Christ's blood was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. The second part is that communion is supposed to be an active act of participation. 
that whenever we take communion, what we are saying is that we are participating in the benefits that Christ has earned as he died on the cross for the glory of God and for the forgiveness of sin. That's why communion, the Lord's Supper, is something that is only to be taken by believers. Because when you take of the Lord's table, what you are saying is that I am joining Christ and I am receiving the benefits that He earned by dying on the cross for sin. It's a proclamation and it's a sign of participation. And here in a while, we are going to take the Lord's Supper together. And I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you that if you don't have a relationship with Christ, please don't come to that table and take communion because it says something for our body. And if you do come to that table here in a moment, I want to challenge you that if your heart is not right in your relationship with God, repent and confess your sin and know that He is God. Proclaim what He has done and receive the benefits that He has earned. Communion is to be a picture of remembrance. And what's happening in the Spirit-filled New Testament church is when they are getting together, they are remembering Christ. And they're remembering what He has done. What if, in the church today, whenever we gather together, be it in homes or be it corporately, we were remembering that our faith is not about us. It's all about Him. You see, what happens when division often starts in the church is somehow we come to believe that the church is about us. It's about, it, it's about the way that we feel or it's about the way that we think. And so Christ loses His center. We stop remembering Him. We stop proclaiming Him and receiving the benefits of participating. And it becomes about us. What if every time that the church gathered, we remembered Christ and we remembered what he's done. The fourth commitment of the early church was this. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That passage is unpacked again there in verse 47. It says that they were praising God and having favor with all of the people. I was having a conversation with Mark earlier this week and we were talking about prayer and talking about how Luke goes on to write here in this verse in verse 47 that they were praising God and that's connectivity to prayer and he reminded me of something he said that Charles Hayden Spurgeon said this that it is impossible to disconnect prayer from praise God has given us the invitation to pray not because he doesn't know what we need but because he gives us the opportunity to praise him by praying, by crying out to Him. Prayer is the sign, it's a sign of our faith in God. Because when we pray, we should be saying certain things. I've been reminded of this as I've been teaching my children the Lord's Prayer, and that's been an awesome time in our home. And as I've been teaching this with them, and I was thinking about this this week, how does Jesus teach us that prayer is praise? And if you look in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer, what the Lord's Prayer says, it becomes very apparent that when this Spirit-filled New Testament church is gathering together, they are praising God 
in the prayers that they are praying. Check this out. This is how Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What that means is, God, you are God, and we are not. Your name is holy. Ours is not. God, praise you. I proclaim your goodness, that you're God. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom, not my kingdom. Not my stuff, but your stuff, God. Not my reign, but your reign. Your will be done. God, not my will, but your will. Not my agenda, but your agenda. Give us this day our daily bread. God, I recognize that I don't have the means to provide for myself the things that will give me life. I don't have the means to produce food and to produce shelter. I recognize that all of those things come from you. So God, help us to sustain life. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God, thank you for forgiving me. And God, help me to forgive those who have hurt me. And you just not into temptation. God, I need your help. God, I need your help. Deliver us from evil. God, I need your help. God, I praise you. It's your kingdom. It's your glory. It's your power. It's praise. The Spirit-filled New Testament church is gathering together, and as they pray, they are praising God. They're proclaiming His goodness, His holiness, His might, the recognizing that everything that they need will be provided for by God. He's the source of all things that are good, as Nathan has already shared. So a condition of the Spirit-filled church is that they're Spirit-filled. They're saved. Four commitments, these have also been called the four pillars of worship, is the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And then, after we see the church gathering to do these things, and again, I said that at least these things, I believe that there's many other things that they're doing, but these are four of the things that we see here talked about in this passage. As they've gathered together to do these things, there is a consequence. Now, right now, as you hear me say that word consequence, you're probably wondering, like, what does he mean, consequence? Does that mean that, like, something bad happens to this really good church? That's not what I'm saying. A consequence means that there is a reaction, there's a result to a certain action. Let me give you an example of a consequence on the negative side. My son Benjamin, right now I'm trying to train him to be a godly man, to to model for him in my life what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And as I father him, there's certain consequences that I'm setting up in his life for when when he does an action there is a reaction. There's a consequence. So whenever Benjamin goes and he breaks a toy, I'll sit down with him and I'll talk to him about being destructive. And I'll say, Benjamin, whenever you break something that God has given us, it's taking away something that we've been blessed with. That's not a good thing, Benjamin. And so what I'm going to do as your daddy, I love you. And I want you to understand how serious it is to waste the things that God's given us. So I'm going to take this toy one of your favorite toys, 
and you're never going to get it back because I want you to understand the severity of misusing the things that God has entrusted to us. So the reaction for my son is that he's going to lose something for the action of breaking something. That's the consequence. That's on the negative spectrum. But on the positive side, I want you to understand that the reaction that happens whenever this spirit-filled, saved church has gathered together and they are centering around the teaching of God's Word and they are engaging not in just social living but in sacrificial giving. They are in authentic relationships, sacrificing what they have for each other. They are remembering Christ weekly, daily even, what He's done, remembering that it's about God and it's not about them. And they are praying, glorifying God by praising Him and realizing that He is God and they are not, that God sustains life and they don't, and they need God's forgiveness for their lives. Whenever they are doing these things, whenever they are engaged in that action as Spirit-filled followers of Jesus, there is a consequence And that consequence is that the Lord is adding to their number daily those who are being saved. I believe that if a Spirit-filled group of followers of Christ gather together in their teaching, in their living sacrificially, the remembering Christ and they're praying that there will never be a time where they have a shortage of people. Amen? Because I believe that God is going to gather the people and He will bring them to that community. I've never seen a church that lives this way that isn't a growing church. But I want, you to, I want to remind you of something. It's something that we learned all the way through the book of Luke and we're going to continue to learn it that it is God who is adding to their number daily those who are being saved. It is not the work of man. It is the work of God. He brings, He provides, and He saves. I'm going to have the band come up and we're going to close here. And as we do that, this is what I want to challenge you in. Tonight we've talked about what this New Testament spirit-filled church looks like. And as we've talked about this, first, if your life has not met that first primary condition of being saved, knowing God and having a relationship with Him and being Spirit-filled, I want to encourage you with something. While we talked about there are conditions that this New Testament church is meeting, the things that they're doing, I want you to know that God's love is unconditional. I want you to understand that when we talk about the unconditional calling of God, it means that there is no condition that your heart must meet in order for you to be saved. If you have heard the gospel tonight, as as the bread is being broken and you're understanding that Jesus has come and that He has died for sin and that His His body was broken for us and that His blood was shed, 
and you're seeing that and you're hearing that for the first time, I want to encourage you to respond, to come and to talk to one of our elders and allow us to tell you more about Christ and about the relationship that you can have with Him. But tonight you're here and, and you already know God. But in one of these four areas where you've seen the Spirit-filled New Testament church committed, you've realized that you have not been committed to growing in your relationship with God through the teaching of His Word. You've not been studying. You've not been seeking to understand through God's Word, prayer, or fellowship, or living for Christ. You've just been kind of doing your own thing. We have a table that is set up. It's right back here. You'll see the words teaching on it. And at that table... There, there are several things that you can grab that will help you in your walk. There's several websites that we've listed. There's our statement of beliefs. If you want to grow in the teaching of God's Word, I just want to encourage you to go back there and respond in that way before you come to the table for communion. For the same thing with fellowship, there's a table that's back here that has an invitation for you to sign up for the MV. If you are a follower of Christ but you are not connected to the local church, we want to challenge you to get connected to Matthias Slot. And if it's not Matthias Slot, go get connected to another church. But be involved and be a part of this church that God has created. So you can go back there and you can look at the different things that we have about fellowship. There's also a sign-up for lot families. Over here on this side, there's an area where we have designated completely for prayer. So if you believe that you need to respond in the area of prayer, your prayer life has been weak, you've not been praising God through prayer, we invite you to come up to check out some of the things that we have on this table. We have a book that goes through and teaches us about prayer and what prayer is, what prayer is to be about. We have some cards that you can read up here that will just take you through a guided prayer time before you come and before you respond. But church, may we do this. May we respond to the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit is doing in our lives tonight. May we not sit complacently any longer. If we want to be a part of a Spirit-filled church, it doesn't mean that we can sit on the back row and just be fed for the rest of our lives. It requires action and participation. There is nothing that I have shared here tonight that says, sit on the back row and be quiet. Participate. Be involved in this church. And may we allow God to lead us and to add to our number daily those that are being saved. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, God, for your word. God, I pray that you would help this church to be a church that is founded on your word. It's foundational to our life, to our breath, to everything that we do. God, I pray that you would help us to grow in the areas of our sacrificial living and giving. In our relationships with each other, we would truly love each other and we would be authentic. God, I pray that you would help this church to be a church that remembers you. And Father, I pray that you would help us to grow in our understanding of prayer. Father, I pray that we would not be complacent but God, I ask you to help us to respond to you tonight in the way that you are leading us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Respond.